Hi, guys. I just want to freeze time and hug every neck in the room. That's how we say it here in Texas. If you're not from Texas, don't be alarmed if somebody tries to hug your neck. We hug necks and we kick each other in the throat around here. Those are two very awkward word images. And they also never really happen. We don't actually hug necks, do we, Jenny? Strong hat game, Jennifer. Look at you. Did you guys notice her hat? I have some competition in the room. That's what I hate about, like, attention to details. Next thing you know, everybody starts wearing cool shoelaces. If you do, I will punch you in the throat. Or what's the, what are we saying? <laughs> kick you in the neck. <laughs> oh, it's such a good thing to be here. Feel your energy. Strong watch game today. Akshay, you might need to know that. This is the one we've talked about, you and I. Remember how I used to do that, humiliate you in public? I haven't had anyone to talk about in here. I'm going to have to cut half the words out of the sermon because half of it is really just me bantering on about the people in the room. So anyway, that's, I need to get some new glasses so I can see the balcony. I see the heights up there. I see you up there hiding. Yes, there you are. Well, welcome, welcome. Good morning, one and all. Good morning to the live stream. If you're joining us from Peoria, which I know you are, or wherever, Stan in Nashville. Hi, Stan. Everybody wave to Stan. Also, happy Pride Month, y'all. Happy Pride Month. Um, here, here in Austin, it's a little weird because our March doesn't come till later, but the month is June, and it always throws us cisgendered folk off. We're like, wait, wait. What? So anyway, you'll, there's more coming uh, around... Uh, our pride, prideful or proud allyship and our robust community that involves all. I have to tell you, I did the most anticipating, an- anticipated wedding of the last five years last night um, for a couple who was our very first beloved gay couple who years ago taught us how to rethink and re-speak and reorient in a space, and they were so gracious. We love you, Steph and Lauren. Hopefully you're not watching the live stream the day after your wedding. Anyway. That was a lot of fun. Also, somehow we did it, y'all. We survived Hai Juan. Don't try not to make any noise out there as you, as you, you know, get situated. We survived the month of May. That was a joke. Juan and I go way back. For those of you who feel super awkward right now, just don't. <laughs> Look, at, he's about to say something, and y'all will realize this is a tennis match. This goes back and forth, right, Juan? There you go. <laughs> If you're less than entirely happy to be here, he'll, he has a little enthusiasm to spare for you, so good to see you, Juan. We survived the month of May. We did, we did. Granted, when two out of five of your kids are graduating high school seniors on the same night, maybe that's a bigger deal, in this nearly totally reopened May, uh, where it had, I don't know, 27 different parties and all of a sudden it had, you know, 30 different outfits or different sort of thing. We survived it. They tell me actually that two is almost half of five. I can't be sure about that because I'm not sure about math. Don, I just don't know. But nearly half of our children graduated high school on the same night just a little bit ago. So we're excited and we survived it. We did, Laura, we did. Threading a dozen events uh, in and around the rain clouds and the perfectly noaic diluvial reality of central Texas. Google those words, right? And the storms that have been brewing around us all this time, figuring out how to get all those things woven in took amazing determination, and we did it. I'm talking about sports banquets and academic ceremonies for high-flying academic students and college declaration photo ops and all of that stuff. And oh, did I mention a massive open-air graduation in the stadium for 700 students? It was something else. Anyway, May was epic. It didn't rain that night. That was the only night that it didn't rain, it seems, and we, we thank baby Jesus and diapers for that because... That could have been a mess, because we would have all had to figure out where to go. But anyway, we made it. May was epic. And thanks to the hardworking people around the world who figured out how to design and deliver a vaccine, an effective vaccine, we've been able to reemerge. We've been able to come back 
and celebrate the rites of passage of some of our children and those people that, that have suffered for a year, and I'm super grateful for that. So much was taken from you guys. So much was taken. These are my children in the front row. So much was taken. And it's, lo- it's not lost on me how stark and completely unsurprising the gross and unacceptable inequities of the vaccine distribution are. Now hear me for a second. Imagine living in a certain part of the emerging world where you have no access to this vaccine yet, and imagine while we throw away expired doses because we're, we're just not sure, imagine living in that space and waiting for that to come to your doorstep because some people in the Western world are somewhat reluctant. I don't know, guys. It feels really hard to look at this right now for me. And it illustrates so much of what's wrong in the world, the world that we have made and we continue to tolerate every day. We're kind of an activist church. If you're new here, just get ready. There's a seatbelt under your chair. You can put that on. The way this has all gone down illustrates so much of what's wrong in our world. It's the world that we allow to exist that we ought not. So let's be grateful and let's advocate for a more equitable distribution of what it takes to protect our families. Every human family alive deserves to protect themselves. Does anyone in this house agree? Three people. Molly, I need to hear from you right there in the middle. Anyway, anyway, I suppose that's a bit of a segue of sorts, if you will. What's the update around here regarding reopening? Well, you're looking at it. We pivoted in a single staff service from we're going to open full in September to, guys, we don't really have a reason not to do this now. And so that's why you're here. And it's amazing to see you. If you didn't see Sam's announcement or if you didn't read the email, here's a warning. As we begin to tweak how we do things over the summer, you're going to want to watch the social media feed and you're going to want to read your email, like all the way to the end. Like, read it until Trey says 10.30, so that you know it's not 9.30, and you're sitting here alone thinking, did the time change, and no one told me? We're going to make some adjustments, and we won't get it perfect, but we're going to work on it, and we'll get there. And as you know, we believe in science around here, and we didn't resist shutting down when that was what was asked of us. We shifted our staff. We bought some basic video equipment through which many of you were able to carry along all throughout the year. We figured out how to do this work with creativity and integrity. We didn't complain, and like everyone else, We anticipated the day when we were given the all clear to come back into this little room and pick up right where we left off, only that doesn't seem available anymore. There will be no picking up where we left off, right? And then, in what felt like a sudden move from the CDC, they lifted the indoor gathering restrictions for vaccinated people, and now we've been looking, this thing that we've been looking forward to all this time for all these months is now suddenly available to us. And now, hear me, many of us are feeling reluctant to put on pants, And to find the energy to gather again, comfortably, aren't we? Now hold still for a minute. I'm going to name a few things for us, and I really want you to hear me on this. Some of us who have been doing this church thing for many, many, many years, you know who you are, are now finding ourselves wondering, do we even want to do this now? What do we even want to do next? Do we even want to come back into these strange little buildings, right? Buildings like this one. Does all this church stuff still matter to us as much as it used to seem to do? Do we still need a community to be an integral part of our spiritual journey? These are the questions. They're all good questions, and like you, we are asking ourselves what comes next. We don't shy away. You know this. We don't shy away from hard questions in this little house. We don't back down. We hunt hard, and we name it when we see it. We name stuff here, and I've said this before or some variation of this in a dozen places over the last few months. This global pandemic has accelerated the death of a model. I don't mean a model like, you know, somebody who 
models for Pepsi-Cola. The death of a church model is what I mean. Meaning, church as an institutional organization built on old assumptions has been dying for a really long time. You've watched it. You've seen it. The inability to gather in person for over a year sped up what was long underway. Number one, that faith communities no longer occupy the center of our social calendars. It's revealing this to us. Number two, that faith community leaders are no longer seen as sole possessors of the secrets to spiritual growth and discipleship. You are that for yourself. I know a lot of pastors who take this whole thing personally and they're holding their breath this week. They shame people for abandoning their upbringing. They glamorize the golden years and the gilded age, making the 1950s feel like a desirable future, but I don't believe any of that. I just don't. I suppose I could reach for those levers, right, that activate shame and guilt to try to fill up a church building again, but I won't go there. I don't believe in that. Duty, as it turns out, is a rotten driver. It has its place. There's a time and a place to do things because we know to do it. So duty has its place. It's just not in the driver's seat of our lives. And shame and guilt never survive very long when they're in close proximity with the gospel that liberates all. So let me just say this as simple as I know how your heart can feel what I'm about to say anyway. Now that we can gather, some of us are wondering if we want to. And that's okay. Did you hear me? Take a breath. That's okay. I actually trust you to make that call. You instinctively reach for what you need when you need it. You've been doing it for your whole lives. It's why you're here. What I hope you're experiencing around here in the messaging that we're shaping is a rediscovery of trust in yourself to make the right call when needed. Now, this next little bit is in bold. Hear me. Different seasons call for different resources, and we get to learn to bless and release one another at every threshold, at every transition. Coming into and moving on from a faith community need not be confusing or soul-crushing. I won't let it be. Do what you need to do next. And as a local church, we are committed to teaching the gospel that sets all people free. We take that seriously. Wherever God gives us the voice and some influence, we will do that. But we may be honest together that this is not what everyone needs right now. It just isn't. And that's fair. You know what you need. Do you hear how I'm shifting the eyes back to you? I'm tired of a world in which you have to sit in a building for someone to tell you how to think. No, no, you know what you need next. And with a little hunger and some permission, you'll know exactly where to find it. You always have. I'm looking at you. Look what you've survived. You're here. So pay close attention to our media and the emails. Uh, Open them and read them as we begin to tinker and experiment. You know, one of our cultural distinctives around here that I most appreciate is the willingness to experiment. We tinker, and we'll feel what's right, and we'll know what's right, and we'll settle on that. We have grown, and we have grown tired. Fatigue is real. I see signs of it in our staff. I see it on our board. That's not even to mention the volunteer corps that makes all of this work. Some of them, our, our kids' volunteer corps, to be honest, is is, is been so decimated over this that we really can't even open yet, not with certified people through safe gatherings. So we need to work on that. We're all tired, and that's okay. I want you to hear that permission. Look at what we've come through. I was talking to one of my children this morning as we were ironing shirts in the kitchen. It wasn't that many months ago that we didn't venture out for fear of our lives. We have so quickly forgotten the toll that takes on our soul, have we not? 
We've come through a lot. COVID has taken, but it has also taught us a bunch of good stuff. And those two things are connected. Something being taken and something new coming in, in case you wondered. So today I want to talk to you about surrender. Specifically thinking through the lens of COVID and what we've learned this past year during this great pause, I'd like to start by asking a hard question. Y'all know me. I love to ask hard questions. I always have. I was that obnoxious kid. But why? But why? But why? You know, right? My life has been a great adventure because I've given myself to adventuresome questions and I've pursued whatever it took to find the answers to those questions. So here's what I've been thinking about this week as we have moved ourselves to reopen. As the school year has drawn to a close, as the world's beginning to emerge again, as the black pumas fill venues in our town, and, you know, as things begin to reopen. Here's the question. Do we get credit for surrendering even if we had no choice in the matter? Working from the premise that surrender is a good thing. Do we get the benefits? Do we get the credit? Do we get the benefits, the dividends, even if we didn't willingly let go of what COVID took? I said something last Sunday, if you didn't catch it, it's all out there on social media. And I'm still thinking about it. And that's how it actually works for me. Thoughts come in loops. It's like daisy chains of thoughts, and they layer on top of each other. One thought kind of carries on for a while, and it'll be picked up later. But I said this this last week. I think the most significant spiritual technology we have is surrender, release, letting go, laying down all resistance. And of course, by technology, I'm describing any tool or process or any method deployed to achieve a desired goal. If our goal is to be more like Christ, which I don't know about yours, but mine is, which is, of course, is to say to love more, to live more consciously, to, to live more awake, to be more fully alive. If that is our goal, then what gets us there faster than letting go? You tell me. I've said this before, and I think most important, the most important human posture is simply this. Open palms, open hands, surrender. And I'm not alone here. All the great spiritual teachers of all the great faith traditions across time and culture have said something similar to this. The end goal of life is to learn to be present, to clench nothing, to experience what passes through, and to learn to release. I now see surrender from this midlife way station that I am very much in. Jog with me if you don't believe me. I now see surrender as the ultimate goal. And I didn't come to this conclusion because I'm extra smart or I'm above average. I found my way to the technology of surrender by exhausting every other alternative. That's just how it works for me. Age, experience, exhaustion, they've all worked on me in their own predictable divine ways. I tried the easier options first. These will be familiar. All young zealots do. Guys, we come out of the blocks and we race that first half of that quarter mile like lightning, right? Among the old technologies that I used to believe in so profoundly were precise doctrine and correct beliefs and denying desire and church attendance, of course, and working really hard to erase myself to gain the affirmation of my superiors and somehow in so doing, hoping to curry favor with God. If, if through no other thing than just austere effort and pure zeal. Tried those. And they all proved to be poor tools in the end, empty processes. They were ineffective methods at producing any kind of real happiness or transformation. But they did what they were supposed to do. They wore me down until surrender felt like the only option that remained. And I'm guessing the same is true for you. If you're honest, COVID has given you a master class. It's given us all a master class 
has it not? Most of us, if we're willing to admit it, it's given us a master class on how to surrender things that we actually didn't control anyway. When control is taken away, you adjust. We adjust, like it or not. There are two great moments of surrender that came to my mind from the life of Jesus this week as I prepared. Both are preserved for us in our text. And the first one happens in the garden. You would know the story. It's the night before he was murdered where Jesus prays literally that God might take from him the cup of sorrow, the process of bodily suffering that he knew was coming next, that he was about to endure. You recall what happened. It started with betrayal of a close friend, and then he gets pulled out of the garden in chains, getting flogged before Pilate, a tin, tin horn potentate then being carried, uh, forced to carry a cross along a rocky winding course called the Way of Pain. Don, you would know it. You've been there many times. Started there. And then, of course, there was the crucifixion itself, a gory death on a stake that would have been nearly impossible to endure, but it also would have been the natural outcome for anyone who taught like he did, who said what he did, when he did, to whom he did. You didn't have to be a Messiah to know that crucifixion was next when you taught like Jesus did. You didn't have to be clairvoyant. You could have seen it. You could have seen it coming. Jesus begs God to take this option off the table from the garden. He resisted. He wept. He even yelled at his friends when they couldn't see the intensity of his anguish, his struggle with the will of God that took nearly all night. And besides the physical pain that Jesus knew he was about to endure, there was the intention intense emotional sensations related to a broken heart as he watched his friends scatter under the public shame and humiliation of it all. You might say that Jesus' entire existence was one of surrender. You would, of course, not be wrong, but in the garden and on the cross, we see two particular moments in which surrender just comes to life. For me, maybe it's because of his resistance to it in both cases. I don't know if I've ever heard a sermon preached on these particular two passages, certainly not together. That's why it seemed like a good idea to try it today. I'm sure you've heard uh, both of them, but never in concert. So listen for this idea of surrender as I read these two texts, both from the book of Matthew, both very late in his recollection. Matthew 26 reads this way, and the words will be on your screen. Then Jesus went with them to to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. He took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, and he began to be grieved and agitated. You can feel his body begin to respond to the weight of what he was carrying. Then he said to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and stay awake with me. Going a little further, he threw himself on the ground and prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. A little further on in Matthew 27. The second scenario we're looking at says, from noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon, and about three o'clock, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, and here's my best Aramaic, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. I've heard that done a million ways, mostly through American vernacular, but it doesn't matter. That is, translated for us, very helpful. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, this man is calling for Elijah (laughs) At, at once. One of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine. We call that kombucha in Austin, but anyway. It belongs on a sponge on a stick, I'm just telling you. I, I know if you, if you all love kombucha, I just, you just haven't had enough electric jellyfish, but whatever. Filled it with sour wine, and he put it on a stick, and they gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Then Jesus cried again with a loud voice and breathed his last, literally exhaled his way off the planet. 
These are two of the most intense moments of God's humanity. Bold words right there. Physical and emotional torment woven together in an unimaginable mix. Does it seem a little odd to you that the Son of Man would beg God to take suffering out of the equation? Now follow with me here. Does it seem a little odd to you after all this time he would still wonder about alternative routes to the end game? Wouldn't you think that surrender would come naturally to Jesus of all people? (laughs) Oh, I'm so relieved that it didn't. Twice in the garden, Jesus begs God for a different option, any other thing than anything but dying a criminal's death, anything than being hung naked in front of a jeering crowd, anything other than having to suffer. That was the content of his prayer. Then in verse 46 of chapter 7 in the second scenario, a verse we call the dereliction cry, does it seem odd to you that Jesus would feel abandoned by God on the cross? I mean, is there anywhere God is not already present? Surely Jesus had studied King David's theology. He must have. He was a young rabbi. He came up in in Hebrew school like all the rest. He quotes Psalms 22 here. These words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a direct quote from David. This is a word from word, word for word quote from the Psalms. He obviously knew the theology of David. If Jesus knew this relatively obscure quote, this obscure text, then surely he would have read where David wrote these words. Psalms 139, where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, one of the many conceptions of the underworld in scripture, you are also there. If I take the wings of the morning and settle in the furthest limits of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light around me become night. Even the darkness is not too dark for you. Even in the deepest dark, y'all, David says, you're still there. Surely Jesus would have known that God was everywhere. Any young Jewish rabbi would have been more than a little familiar with this elemental passage in King David. There was nowhere in the accessible cosmos where God was not already present. He knew this. Besides, It wasn't in the nature of God to forsake anyone. Jesus, of all people, knew this. So then what do we have here then? What are we witnessing in these two passages where Jesus seems to protest the inevitable? Resistance, friends. That's what we're looking at. Resistance to surrendering, which I think is really good news for us. I'm sure you noticed that the dereliction cry here in Matthew 27 27 is preserved in Aramaic. It's the actual language Jesus spoke. This is somehow so intense, so confusing, so terminal, that it deserved a unique kind of preservation to the writers of the gospel. It's like those Henry and David pears that come in that special wrapping, right, around holidays. I guess pears are pears, but these are special. This little text, some of you have no idea what I'm talking about. Is that a Midwest thing? Do we only send each other expensive pears in the Midwest? Somebody help me out. Is it a Midwest thing, Sam? Must be. You know those $12 pairs that your boss sends you, and you're like, well, anyway. Anyhow, this little passage, this little word formulation deserve a unique kind of preservation. They leave it in Aramaic in our text. In fact, it's one of the very few places in the New Testament, perhaps eight if you count them liberally, that remain in its spoken form. Everything else was written down in Greek, and the Greeks loved a neat and tidy ending, didn't they? A positive ending. In Greek plots, and I hope Dr. Julie here doesn't correct me, our literature professor in the room, don't, don't anybody look at Dr. Julie right now. 
The Greeks loved a positive ending. They loved these plots where things ended well, and a good person always triumphs in the end. Am I right? The hero always wins, and the strong, well, they don't whine, do they? They don't complain. They face their death with steely resolve. They drink their hemlock willingly. No one speaks Aramaic anymore. It's a dead language now, having disappeared under the rubble of empire not long after Jesus passed. There are a few theories as to why uh, these eight little bits and pieces must have been preserved as the hearers would have heard them. They're preserved for our eyes the way Jesus' friends would have heard them. And I offer you no concrete theories, but I do admit to wondering this, especially about this passage in Matthew 27. I wonder if it had something to do with being squarely outside of the acceptable plot lines of the day. How do we have God hanging on a cross, claiming to be abandoned by God, his Father? No one knows what to make of a person who's fighting the inevitable. No one knows how to watch someone fighting against the act of surrendering. It's awkward, especially when we go on to claim that this person was the very best of us. <laughs> Here's what we know. Surrendering, friends, in a way is inevitable. Death will come to all, no matter how much one resists. We'll all end up in the same place in the end. So let's bring this back to our world, if we may. Think of all that COVID took from you. How much of that did you give up willingly? <laughs> how much control do you ever give away without a fight? I'm guessing, like me, not very much. And whether we resist it or not, we will be free when we find the ability to let go, to release, to surrender. It's our primary technology, you guys. Maybe it doesn't matter so much how we get there. Maybe it doesn't matter how long it takes to wear us down, to wear down our defenses. Maybe it just matters that we get there. Jesus did. He got there somewhat reluctantly, like many of us, if we allow the text to simply say, but it sure seemed like it's naturally saying. Jesus, friends, had to learn to surrender. After 33 years of preparing for this moment, he still resisted. He still fought it. He eventually surrendered, but it hurt. There was pain involved, great pain. <laughs> pain that made him wince and resist and even beg for a different way forward. Pain so great that Jesus experienced it in his body as abandoned. And this confuses some of us. In truth, the church has never been very good at talking about what makes God hurt, has it? For some people, pain is the antithesis of power. People with power have the capacity to avoid pain. That's why they have power. Physical torture and sacrifice, it's not on the agenda for people with power. And there's something about the Son of God's suffering that defies the religious imagination. Oh, but I'm asking that we widen it just a bit today. Seems to me, these sorts of people haven't fully considered their own journey as a child of God because they, no doubt, know suffering and pain and loss. No, friends, hear me clearly. You have nothing to be ashamed of if at first you feel the impulse to reject the invitation to surrender, to lose control. You have no reason to hang your head low, even if for extended seasons of time you struggle to summon the grace to release. Even Jesus, our example par excellence, struggled with this. Surrender doesn't come easily or naturally, but it comes to one and all, eventually. 
I think in a way the entire arc of Scripture bears witness to this principle, humankind learning to surrender to the divine. It's pretty much the whole story if you're looking, if you're looking for a simple motif. We could make this conversation locatable in Abraham or Jacob or Gideon or Huldah or Rachel or Jeremiah or Micah, you pick. I have unlearned a lot of what I used to be certain of. The nature of God, the role of humankind, the definition of sin, the doctrines of heaven and hell, etc. I'm less and less certain about all of that list of things, but of this, dear friends, I am 100% sure life teaches us all to let go, to surrender, to accept, however slowly, that the things that are taken are no longer essential to our wholeness and our well-being, and that's the key. The things that are taken from us are not essential to who we are, to our well-being. Which means even after losing something, we can still learn to give it up, even when it's gone. We can still release it. We can still surrender control. We still get the credit for this release. And some of you I know hate that word (laughs) because we still get to be free, even if what we relinquish has already been taken away from us. You see... What we're left here is this simple idea that what God wants most is our freedom. Now hang with me. I'm going to question everything you've ever learned here in a tiny few seconds. What God wants is our freedom, not robotic obedience or perfect instantaneous compliance. No, God desires our freedom, no matter what we have to go through to get it. I don't know about you, but I actually find it encouraging that Jesus too would have to learn how to let go. I find comfort and humanity in his resistance. It's the anchor that holds my soul. It normalizes my experience and it reminds me that I am loved. I wonder if the same is true for you somehow. This final thought. Maybe you don't identify with the way I posed the question today. Maybe you don't think spiritual things are tools or technologies, you know, ways to get your goals. Maybe you naturally surrender and you never worry about what you do or don't get credit for. Maybe. The word credit has some freight to it, I know. I floated this word past some good friends this week in a bar and they both hated it. They reacted to the word. Trig, you know what I'm talking about. And maybe the question around which I shaped my reflection today seems a little crass to you. But it's where I'm at. I'm a hustler, I'm a lever puller, I'm a lock picker, I'm a strategic thinker. And I'm working the numbers always, the angles I'm working, I'm looking at, I'm always looking for opportunities to get what I think I need. And whether or not you can access this much honesty this morning, I'm willing to bet you are too. And so was Jesus. So maybe we're still okay. You and I, us together, maybe we're still okay, us fighters who resist, who break a sweat every time we're asked to give up anything. Maybe we're still okay. Maybe surrender was all we ever really needed to do, whether before or after we've exhausted our resistance. Anyway, I guess I'm talking to myself around here in public these days. I know. Just know that you're not alone if you're struggling in similar ways as we take inventory of what we've lost, what we've given away and what can take its place. Pray with me. Dear Lord, we ask for grace as we release today. You are good. You've always been good. You're not ashamed of our doubt and our struggle. You're patient. And for that, we give you thanks.
In your name we pray. Amen. Y'all better breathe. I feel like no one's inhaled in here.